The story is told, though who can say if it be true, of a clan of medieval warriors awoken in modern-day Manhattan, of the animated series that told their story. It is an age of darkness, superstition and the sword rule. It is an age of fear. It is the age of gargoyles. Welcome to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast. This is Nightwatch, reporting from New York, Travis Marshall. Tonight, more on the news that has rocked Manhattan, if not the world. And welcome to our news section, Gargoyles fans. I'm your co-host, Greg Bashansky. My co-host, Jennifer L. Anderson, can't be here right now, unfortunately, but we hope to have her back soon, and we hope to hear her thoughts on this issue and Dark Ages issue one. But Greg Wiseman is joining me here today to talk about our first impressions of these great comic books. And um, But before we do that, we've got a little bit of NECA news. The Steel Clan robot has shipped out. I've already got three of them on my shelf. And, um, <laughs> and, and I'll, send you photographs of what, I'll send you photographs of what I've set up later, Greg. <laughs> You'll like it. <laughs> or like me show the fans. Don't show me. Show the fans. <laughs> You can see them on the they want to know. The, you can see them on the voices from the Eerie Twitter account, assuming Elon hasn't destroyed the site yet. <laughs> he's but, listening. Um, yes, he's listening. He's everywhere. He is the Illuminati, he wishes. <laughs> but um but yeah, so and Angela is trickling out. I've got one pre-order from Best Buy. Hopefully it should be widely available soon. And Right now, as far as we know, Xanatos is next, and then Elisa Maza is after that, followed by Lexington. And we're still waiting for them to put Xanatos's armor up for pre-order. And assuming we're up before San Diego Comic-Con, we're looking forward to seeing what they show off there. And if not, our next news section will discuss what we've seen at San Diego Comic-Con. So that's out there. And um, also, by now, you should have your copies of Issue 7 of Gargoyles and Issue 1 of Gargoyles Dark Age. We're going to give our first impressions on these, starting with Gargoyles Issue 7. Really enjoyed the issue. I've waited. I, I don't even know. It's been over two decades for her to make her big return. And um, it was fun. It's obviously laying the groundwork for things to come. I don't know if we're going to get her again in the short term, but I'm looking forward to seeing where this ultimately leads to. Good. (laughs) I'm not going to tell you anything about the future. Happy to talk about this issue. It's out, but I'm not going to spoil it. That would go against my brand. Oh, I I don't blame. I don't want you to tell me. I, I want to find out. (laughs) I've been enjoying this ride thoroughly. And um, but there are some questions I have. I've seen some confusion about the nature of how the spell she's working, using actually works. I mean, it requires blood from those mosquitoes, which I assume she swiped before she Hunter's Moon Part th- Three. But uh, she took possession of them at some point. Uh, I don't even really know, or if I'm being honest, care when. Obviously, it was sometime between. Um, reckoning and and the end of hunter's moon but uh somewhere in there she got what she needed 
Right, but how Was exactly? That the question, this, or did I miss? No, I mean, uh, I, mean, I mean, there's been some confusion as to how exactly the spell works, what the what, the, how it works in conjunction with the blood, and uh, just a bit curious because you the know the blood allows her to track specific individuals, um, and so she can see through these flaming portals uh, individuals for whom she has blood. Interesting. Yeah, that that makes sense. That's what I was thinking, but thinking myself. And um, it also seemed to imply it can look into the past. It also seemed to imply it can look into the future. And on that note, I kind of find it interesting. It was written in Gaelic and not Latin. Uh, you know the the Grimorum was full of spells from many different eras. Um, it if you go back far enough, it wasn't a a book in the way that you know we think of a, a book it was scrolls and the, those scrolls were cut and then uh bound into a book um and they came they come from multiple different sources and then they were cut um and placed inside this book um so i one of the reasons that i did gaelic um honestly was just in, in part to demonstrate that to sort of show that um yeah most of the spells in there are latin but not all of them um we'd done hebrews not from the grimoire but we'd done hebrew spells in the past and um i imagine there are some greek spells in there uh and other ancient languages uh mostly from the west from western culture i would guess because that's where the book originated in the west but you never know um, and now we'll never know because the book, book's been destroyed. And this was the <laughs> last uh, undestroyed spell. Uh, but yeah, I had sort of uh, made the choice to to do this one in Gaelic just to demonstrate that idea that uh, this wasn't a Latin book. This was a, a book of spells from throughout the ages um, up to... Uh, uh, you know, it, probably even beyond, uh, well, at least up to when uh, the Magus, you know, journeyed to Avalon. Whether there are any spells beyond that, we don't know. Um, but again, now we won't ever know because the book's gone. So unless we see them in flashbacks or something like that. Uh, well, well, there is Dark Ages, which we'll talk about in a few minutes. But no, it was, a, it was a fun issue. I enjoyed seeing a brief glimpse um, behind the camera of her routine. I What I really liked was, I think it's people had asked you in the past several times if she always destroys her clothing at sunset. So I think it was fun to see. No, she doesn't. It was no, also... Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, you know, sometimes it's unavoidable and sometimes maybe for a fact she chooses that. But um, obviously... Uh, any time that she has t time to prepare and there isn't a sort of uh, demonstrably dramatic reason why she's doing it. Um, you know, uh, she's got plenty of money, but you know, she's not wasting it. So, and I don't think she gets any particular pleasure out of ripping those clothes. Uh, you know, it, it, it's not a fashion statement. It's simply, you know, I imagine that would be pretty uncomfortable. You're suddenly in in 
garments that are horribly restrictive to the point that you're ripping out of them that can't be pleasant so my guess is is that most of the time she's taking them off and and preparing in that way cool cool and i uh, like to follow up with um the, that battle was really kinetic. I got to give it to George Camadeus. The way Lexington took out that car, took recap from uh, glasses. It was it was a really fun fight scene. Isaac Slaughter owing them one is <laughs> another fun little scene. Which I knowing you, I know you're not going to spoil my asking, but I expect we're going to follow up on that later at a certain point. And um, these three new keys to power are intriguing. The fandom is already trying to guess who, what, where, and everything. I mean, if I'm being honest with my thinking, again, I'm not asking for spoilers. I think it w- we've seen at least one before, and at least one will be new, but I could be wrong about that also. I think it's worth speculating. I'm not going to give an answer. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to that. And um, But also the idea of that tracking spell, it's chilling. She can, granted, with hours of concentration, she can check in on them at any time so i'm i don't think that's gonna be the last we see of that thing it's uh information it's power so she can gather it but um i'm looking forward to seeing where this all goes and uh brooke it's a little scene but hudson's smiling at brooke at broadway and lexington reconnecting brought me joy also and what amused me about that was not even something necessarily in the issue but a few days before then, Christopher Jones asks you on Twitter if they high four. And then this comes out. Yeah, I was uh, caught off guard by that because I just, I mean, I'd written the issue some time ago, but I had just seen uh, proofs uh, uh, of the issue uh, not too long before Chris wrote that. And uh, I know he didn't, or at least I assume he didn't have any inside knowledge, but uh, I was like, he was just making a joke. Um, I know, but it was like, yeah, but that's a joke I just made and it's going to be out in a week. Um, so it was funny that he did that. Uh, so I was giving him props for thinking of it. Uh, but yeah, um, I kind of feel like we might have made that joke once before and I'm forgetting. No, no, like, no, you never did. I've Trust never me, done that. Never We've did. never done that before. Nope. All right. Well, I' glad we did it here. I'm glad I did it before Chris <laughs> did his, so it didn't seem like I was copying him. You couldn't possibly have copied him. Too much lead time nope. necessary on a comic, but uh, I, I was glad to uh, to get that in when it when it I did. And the big scene between Toby Cress and Goliath, I had seen some people, and this is where I say, "Have a little faith. He knows what he's doing." How how can we haven't seen the meeting before? How when, when is he going to meet this guy? How can he be his lawyer? And then we finally get the meeting. It makes sense, and um, I especially love you addressing head on the question that some fans have been asking. He walks, he talks, he thinks. What's there to debate? Uh, I would love to say what is there to debate, but have you seen our country? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I. I'm afraid that uh, Toby's point uh, that humans fear what they don't understand and uh, and barely tolerate you know, the own fact diversity. that they barely tolerate it, its own diversity and and 
God, you know, I used to not too long ago talk about how uh, toleration is is uh, is insufficient. And the way things are going right now, without sounding too cynical, or trying not to sound too cynical, oh my God, can we at least get back to tolerating? You know, um, I I felt for a time where it was like, okay, let's get past just tolerating to empathy and understanding. Um, and now I uh, feel like uh, let's just get back to tolerating. So I, I think the notion of, I mean, the irony, of course, is that I think one thing that would bring humans together is gargoyles showing up, aliens showing up. It'd be a great way to bring humans together. Find some other scapegoat. Find some other other that's so weird or so different that all us freaky humans go, well, you're not that different. Look at that thing. Um, it would be, uh, you know, the horrible irony is that, you know, there seems to be some hardwired need in us for tribalism and, and uh, sectarianism. And um, I think that um, that's the point Toby's making is, is that, uh, um, yeah, good luck with that, Goliath. I mean, I'm going to help you as best I can, but this is not a slam dunk. And you standing up and speaking intelligently isn't in and of itself going to be enough because we're a horrible species. <laughs> Hashtag Demona was right. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's, it's, we are problematic to say the least. Um, yes, we are. And uh, so I think it's, you know, for, people to question why is this necessary it's so obvious i would say um uh look around you um because i don't think uh it's quite as obvious as it should be sadly i agree i very sadly agree with you on this one i mean every, there, there's nothing off about anything you said i wish you were wrong but you're not and i remember waiting issues on um, as soon as this this whole sequence started, this whole plotline started, I wonder what Demona's reaction is going to be to Goliath's hearing. I mean, on the one hand, I, I, I thought someone was going to be, I did not think it would be this amusement at his predicament, but it makes so much sense because from her point of view, of course. And he got himself into that. Yeah, I mean, you know... Um... Demona's relationship to Goliath is, shall we say, complicated. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, what qualifies as sympathy for her, I guess, is bemusement. Um, you know, that is, she's not actively trying to hurt him this moment. So that's as sympathetic as he's about to get at this time. So um, uh, we'll just have to. Um, wait and see how it plays out uh, uh, in the hearing and in terms of Demona's plans. Yeah. As a reader, you have me nervous. I mean, we're everyone assumes or everyone thinks, well, at least some people think 
you know, it's a plot line. This is a show. There's going to be a happy ending to this. And I'm thinking we might get the Gargoyles universe equivalent of the Dred Scott decision. You have me nervous about this. I have no idea what's going to happen here. <laughs> uh, good. Um, you know, uh, I mean, the key thing is you say, will there be a happy ending? And I say, well, for starters, there won't be an ending. I mean, here in Manhattan, we'll end with issue 12. That arc will end. But it's not like it's over, right? Um, we have comics mm-hmm. planned beyond that with Dynamite, let alone all the stories I have. There's no ending. Um, so whether here in Manhattan ends on a grace note or on a note of horror, well, we'll wait and see when we get to issue 12. But what it frankly comes down to is the notion that any ending is definitive that's not gargoyles um uh gargoyles is an ongoing thing as long as there's one gargoyle alive somewhere i guess two since the book is gargoyles plural as long as there are two gargoyles <laughs> alive somewhere there's no definitive ending uh to this story ever um and that's what uh, i like to hear well yeah and i know that that bothers certain fans a certain cadre of fans who want definitive endings, want stories with beginning, middle, and ends. They're basically talking about movies, um, which I get. I totally get that. But um, Gargoyles wasn't developed as a movie. I'm not saying we couldn't make a great movie. I'm saying that fundamentally this was developed as um, ongoing television series and uh, about, you know, not any one individual. It's an ensemble cast. And it's a group story. And that means that um, there is no definitive ending. So however here in Manhattan ends, uh, and your viewers can see that on Patreon, but your listeners didn't see, I did air quotes on ends. But um, uh, however here in Manhattan ends, that doesn't mean that there's an end. There's no, um, there's no definitive answer because the story just keeps going and uh um and so that's one thing to keep in mind you know however upbeat or downbeat any one story is and god knows we've done both over the years in episodes in issues of the comic uh both the slg issues and these issues but you know when push comes to shove Nothing's over till it's over, and for this series, it's never over. So, nope. I mean, <laughs> even Hunter's Moon, which we'll talk about later on, was somewhat b- bittersweet but hopeful. And um, it's just, uh, you know, it's just a fun issue. I was really happy to see Demona again, to hear Demona again, even if it was only in my head. Because, but Marina Sirtis's voice was just there, and it's been a very long, I mean, long time. It's, it's safe for one dialogue less page in this SLG era and then a flashback a time travel story to 970 the 997 and um was it fun to write her again after all this time you know uh there are a few characters as fun to write as Demona um you know Xanatos is up there there are characters that are very satisfying to write uh Goliath and Elisa uh are in that category um but you know in terms of who's fun to write it's the villains, you know. <laughs> it's Thalos, Demona, it's Xanatos. Those are the ones who are truly fun to write. Um, 
you know, there are uh, a handful of others. Uh, I'm getting a great kick out of, uh, you guys haven't seen much of him yet, but we will eventually out of writing Nash. Um, and I'm getting a kick of being back to writing all these characters. Um, but who's really fun. Demona's obviously way up there. And yeah, of course I'm, you can't not hear Marina's voice, um, when I'm writing it. So hopefully if I'm doing my job, right, you guys are hearing it, uh, when you're reading it because she's the, she's the model, you know, she's the, she's the archetype. So, um, that is, it's true for all the characters, but obviously for Demona, um, Marina is wonderfully inescapable when writing her. And, uh, and so, yeah, that is a joy to me. Oh, mission accomplishment. Before we move on to dark ages, any moments in the final issue that stick out to you usually mention at least one page that brings you joy. Uh, I mean, I think they all bring you joy, but really bring you joy. I, I actually, I mean, I, I liked all of it. Um, probably my favorite single page. Uh, usually, it, uh, I mean, a big, a great candidate is there's a page where um, Toby introduces himself to Goliath and they just talk back and forth and Toby ends on the line, basically humans fear what they don't understand. And um, I like that page a lot, but if I had to just pick one from the issue, um, I would uh, probably um, go with the last page. I just think that uh, um, that last page with those two shots of Demona are just so gorgeous. You know, one where she's sort of thinking and one where her eyes start glowing, she's cast, casting a, a spell and she's got a smile on her face. Um, I just love what George did on that page with those uh, two simple panels of Demona. It's just gorgeous to me. So that's probably my favorite. Like I said, there are a lot of pages I like and um you know, I, I love the first page. I love the second page. You know, all that build up to finally getting to Demona again. You know, her thinking of humans as fools. Her seeing Elisa on TV and immediately turning the TV off. I love that. I love that. Um, and then, you know, George's double-page spread transformation from Dominique in Demona's clothes to Demona. Um I think is really wonderful. Um, and yet for me, yeah, I have to say it's probably the simple pleasure of page 22, that last page of, of just those two faces of Demona um, calculating and uh, in the mode, you know, to work her magic, her dark magic. It, it, to me, those are, that's just a knockout page. Um, nice. Nice. Oh, one more little moment before we move on to Dark Ages. A favorite of mine, Goliath correcting Toby on the pronunciation of Elisa's name. Yeah, that's like my pet peeve brought to life here. Uh, 
Toby calling her Eliza and then Goliath correcting it to Elisa. Um, it drives me crazy. I mean, you've got these, I, I mean, I see reviews or hear various podcasts or, 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 you know, audio or video reviews often from people who clearly are incredibly familiar with the, with the stuff. I mean, well-informed, smart, all sorts of stuff. And yet they still spell and or pronounce Elisa wrong. And I'm like, it was on the show. I do, you know, it's in the credits as Elisa in writing and you've heard it as Elisa. Where are you getting Eliza from? Where is that coming from? I mean, I get that it's only one letter away, but it's not like, uh, you know, someone saying Greg with two G's at the end and Greg with one and they're, and they just didn't ever know which it was, but they're pronounced the same way. These are two different words. I don't understand where that mistake's coming from. And over the years, it's gotten ridiculously frustrating for me. Like how, I mean, I get it was a mistake. It happened once or twice. It happens continually and it drives me fucking bananas. Um, so yeah, I, I took the opportunity to make that point and I'm sure it'll have almost zero effect on the people who need to be made aware of it. It'll only work for the people who already knew. <laughs> um, but if we ever people can, can enjoy with me the frustration of it. I enjoyed it greatly. All right. Dark ages, the first issue of a new series and I had been wondering how you're going to handle the name issue. And then it's right there on the first page. Our kind have no names. And uh, I know you've been assigning names to some of them. And um, when we had Drew Moss on, he mentioned a character called Lefty. I can easily guess which that one is now. (laughs) And I got to say, looking at him, his skin color, his hair, I see some familiar features there. Uh, yeah, well, you should. Um, so that's not shocking. Um, it's not on the first page. Our kind have no names. Uh, it's on the seventh page, but yeah. No, no, no. It's it's the uh, it's in bronze. It's quite literally the first page right after the cover. Oh, you see, I don't have the hard copy of the book. Uh, so I don't. I only have the interior pages. I do not have before me. Um, I don't even have the text story before me. Um, oh, well, we'll talk about that in a moment. So I uh, until my copies arrive, which you know should be any minute or any day anyway. Um, I uh, I'm stuck with only the actual 22 pages of art and story to look at. But it was yeah. But it was a very fun opening, a very fun beginning. I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes. We've got a, granted, you've revealed this last script. We've got a name now for the future captain of the guard. We've met, we've met Prince Malcolm for the for the first time again in a in a great way. And um, I love and I just love how primitive and territorial the clan, the Wyvern clan, felt at the time. You can truly feel it, and new characters being introduced. Um, there's one you've told us in the past about uh, Hippolyta, and I can already tell she's going to be fun. My first impression of her and Angel, for those listening, Angel is the younger Demona. 
I, I get the feeling these are the two friends whose parents never quite wanted them to get together because they would always get in trouble when they got together. <laughs> That's the feeling I got from this first issue. Uh, you know, uh, they're a handful, without a doubt. Hippolyta <laughs> um, and Angel. Uh, uh, I love how Drew uh, brought Hippolyta to life. I mean, it's she's exactly... Um, how I pictured her. Uh, and I, I think she's every bit as impressive and intimidating uh, and complex in his portrayal of her as uh, I was hoping for. Um, Drew also did a great job on uh, um, lefty and, um, and, uh, and, uh, Hudson's mate, um, and uh, you know, and all the existing characters as well. But it's always fun to see someone new, um, and so we have, you know, four uh, introductions here of um, of new gargoyles um, that we hadn't seen before, and. Uh, that's always just, you know, cool to see. Uh, I got a kick out of, out of seeing those four who've been in my head for so many years, you know, finally visualized because, uh, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I, I, I myself can't draw at all. Uh, I don't try. <laughs> um, so I just try to describe the characters and, as much uh, sort of written detail as I can, but I'm completely dependent on great artists along the lines of, you know, Bob Klein, Greg Guler, uh, Dave Schwartz, and in this case, Drew Moss. Uh, and they, you know, I, I am never let down really. Um, and so all four of these new characters um, just really speak to me um, as designed by Drew. Um, and, uh, I'm thrilled to finally get to see them. One thing that thrilled me, and it was only one panel, but in the pilot, Brooklyn mentioned, shall we have, let our brothers and sisters have all the fun. Now we finally see one of their sisters, one of their rookery sisters anyway, who, um, I'm assumed was mentioned in that diary at the end, the text feature who, um, the writer of the diary, who I have a suspicion as to who that is. I'm not going to guess right now. And I, I cannot pronounce it. Uh, Antiope. Yeah, yeah, her. Uh, yeah, you, there is the Antiope is one of the four new characters introduced. Yeah, so, Keep in mind so again, that, these names are um, largely just names of convenience for behind the scenes. Um, you know, out of universe names. Uh, but um, the character who's writing that diary, uh, unsurprisingly, is a human for whom naming is important. Yeah. And she is uh, naming gargoyles right and left to suit her uh, proclivities. And, uh, um, and so, yeah, she's named... Uh, uh, Brooklyn Lexington and Broadway's uh, 
Rookery's sister, Antiope, who is traditionally uh, an Amazon and sister to uh, Hippolyta. And by Hippolyta, I mean the Amazon queen, not not the Hippolyta gargoyle. Yeah. Um, and, and I assume uh, Washington is Alexander, and um, I'm trying to figure out who Caesar and Charlemagne are, but... Well, um, hopefully that'll become more clear in time, as you need it to be. Uh, cool. Yeah. Gargwiki, we're going to have to wait to actually assign some names to these, but uh, quote-unquote names. But no, it was a really great issue. I love finally seeing the uh, the pack between Malcolm and, uh, and Mentor, the younger version of Hudson, and I love meeting Hudson's mate. I love her design. She's taller than he is. I really appreciated that. And ever since the series ended, since SLG onward, I appreciate the variety in the female designs. Since uh, they're, let's be honest, they all kind of had the same body type in the series. So it's nice to see diversity, change, differences. I mean, I I really appreciate that as a reader and a fan of this property. Well, I think we've all grown up a little, I would hope, over the last 30 years. So there's that. I also think, you know, the two main female gargoyles um, were biologically mother and daughter. So it's not shocking that that they are uh, visually that similar um, yeah. and share a body type. Um, and I think we had uh, across all the other female gargoyles, if you look at Desdemona and you look at Ophelia and you look at um, some of the other gargoyles we introduced, you know, Turquesa, Obsidiana, um, uh, Sora, Luna, uh, Sora. Yeah. You know, across the, uh, you know, I think you see some diversity there, but, uh, obviously I think we've, we've gotten even better at it as we progressed. I mean, I think Coco was a major step, Constance. Um, in the SLG books and and we're continuing to sort of take it that way here and you know you've got a bunch of well cameos here you've got Sacrifice and um, Desdemona and uh, uh, and Shaw you got and Shaw that's right so another uh, beast yeah you know like I said we're having fun with it uh uh, again, I, I'm trying. There's this sort of uh, semi desire to uh, constantly be filling panels with more and more gargoyles, and and you know, at some point, just the. Uh, I mean, it's not a TV show, but still, the economics of uh, um, of the comic from the standpoint of, you know, not killing Drew in the process of <laughs> me writing the script. Uh, you know, I want to, I, I want on the one hand, make the clan feel alive and rich and include the characters that we know, but also since we know they're, you know, we know about it half to a dozen worth of gargoyles. And we know that the clan is really more around 40 or 50 strong. So, I want to hint at that without again, killing drew by making him draw 40 gargoyles in every panel yeah. and making him design a bunch of new characters, which I then have to constantly be figuring out, okay, how's this one, you know, 
On the one hand, there's this great egalitarianism about the rookery system. But then I also have to step back from it and go, yes, but some characters must be biologically related to others. And we have certain rules about what that looks like. And so I've got to pay attention to all this stuff. And at some point, you know, my brain just explodes and Drew's wrist falls off. So uh, it it becomes something that um, I just want to try and uh, Drew and I want to create that balance that on the one hand, you feel like the clan is alive and rich and, and it's not just, you know, like the Manhattan clan, which is a set fixed number used to be six. Now it's 14, um, you know, but still set and fixed. You want this feeling that it's alive and rich and there are multiple gargoyles out there while at the same time, not just completely overburdening us with having to fit you know, everybody into every page or every panel or every scene uh, and or having to figure out every gargoyle um, among the entire clan, because frankly, it's just, just the, the, the mental gymnastics become overwhelming to me at some point. So we're just, we're doing it by degrees. So we, we meet, truly three new gargoyles here and we cameo a fourth you see a handful of familiar faces particularly othello and goliath and angel um and you cameo a handful like chomp and chaw um second sacrifice brooks bro um iago uh but we uh we're not trying to say Oh yeah, this is everybody. We're just not even trying to do that. Um, yet we're trying to hint at it. So beyond the ones you see, you see a few more in the, in the shadows and that kind of thing. <laughs> They're there. Trust us. We'll show you more and more as you know eventually, but uh, not fifty characters at once. Oh, I don't blame you. I mean, I'm looking at them, and I know Jen said she was looking at them. Also, we're trying to figure out. Is anyone related to any of the characters we know? There's two characters, two gargoyles I saw who I definitely think are Demona's biological parents. And uh, the one who I think is the father is probably easy enough to guess. And uh, there's one I saw in the background on one page near the end. And I'm looking at her and I'm thinking similar brow ridge. The hair is different, but I can sort of see that you might know which one I'm talking about. But uh... Mohawk. Uh, you know, I mean, I see the character now I'm looking at her, um, maybe, uh, I'll be honest, you know, again, the idea was to sort of say, Hey, let's feature these characters up front, then have more behind. Some of them will be in silhouette. Um, and he's, you know, created a bunch and, uh, uh, but I don't think in the script I've, uh, named many of uh them or gotten into their backgrounds but every time we put a character on the screen or in a page i try to make a note of it and then start to take account of those in character like brooks bro a character like second um those are characters that just started as quote-unquote nd nondescript gargoyles in the background and then over time their roles expanded a little here a little there and i began to figure out more about them both you know, from a genetic standpoint, but also from a personality standpoint. Um, 
So some of the ones that have sort of, uh, again, background characters, I do not, I'll admit freely, I just don't have the, any real intel on them myself even, but it'll come. The new characters who I do know something about who were featured in this issue are uh, Hudson's second lefty, uh, Hudson's mate, Verity, um, uh, Hippolyta, who's um, Goliath's rookery sister, Angel's rookery sister, but also Goliath, uh, um, Hudson or mentors and Verity's biological daughter and Antiope who, uh, who only got a little visual cameo in this, but uh, she's uh, um, Brooklyn Lexington and Broadway's uh, rookery sister. The way it was written, I thought the quote unquote, I'm doing finger quotes in the air for our listeners who aren't on Patreon. I thought Hudson's, mate's uh designation was verity i had that feeling so a uh, message came across i wasn't quite 100 sure but you can but you managed to convey that so thank you and no it was a really fun issue i mean obviously it's this is setting up things that are yet to come the uh civil war with king colin and um which i'm looking forward to seeing how well we know how it's going to turn out the three brothers are gonna triumph over the army of the three brothers one of them is dead but <laughs> According to the text feature, but I'm I just cannot wait to see it. I'm looking forward to learning more about these new gargoyles characters and seeing more of the of the clan and seeing more of our old favorites because I've seen the solicitations and Angel's gonna be getting into some trouble pretty soon. Uh, yeah, I mean everyone's getting into some trouble, <laughs> frankly, uh, but certainly Angel included. Uh, and uh, I think uh, I've written, uh, I'm in the middle of scripting issue three now of Dark Ages. I finished scripting issue nine of uh, the main book, Gargoyles. Uh, and I, I'm in the middle of scripting issue three of Dark Ages now. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, all six issues of Dark Ages are, are you know, I, I broke all six stories. I know what happens basically in each, but I haven't actually scripted beyond uh, the second issue. And uh, I'm in the middle of three. Yeah. And one more note about the text feature, which features some really cool history for the more human characters. I did a double take. I was reading, okay, this is interesting. This is cool. I'm like, hmm, these descriptions seem a little bit familiar. Then we get to the line, the line that opens this very podcast every episode the story is told but who can say it can be true and i did a double take went back reread the other descriptions and we've seen the people in those troops before in the slg comics i believe <laughs> maybe you have maybe you haven't well looking forward to seeing where that goes and um i all in all it's fantastic i'm really looking forward to it and um looking forward to what comes i'm looking forward to get my hard copies uh to our listeners uh, a little peek behind the curtain we got a little peek in advance but i do have my hard copies of issue seven right now i'm just waiting to get my hard copies of dark ages issue one and i'll be picking up the metal copy of uh gargoyle seven next week and i 
I just cannot wait to see what happens next, but I look forward to it and both books and for what is to come beyond these. Because you caused quite a bit of stir on the Duck Talks podcast when you uh, mentioned you were working on something that wasn't the main book or it wasn't Dark Ages. Yeah, I've written at least one other script that for Gargoyles and Dynamite that is neither for the main book or Dark Ages. But I'm not allowed to say what yet. Well, maybe they'll announce it in San Diego. Hope, fingers crossed. But we'll find out in good time. And I'm glad that Dynamite's faith in the property is what it is because we got 18 issues of SLG and I'm always happy to have those 18 issues. I'm grateful for everything we got. I think we're going to get more here and I'm super excited. I think we will get more here. I've, I've been definitely unequivocally told that we're going to beat the record of 18. Can't Excellent. promise it, but but that is the plan. So um, keep so buying something those Something catastrophic happens or yeah, the sales just fall off a cliff or something. Uh, so please, yeah, keep buying the comics. Uh, Pre-order the comics. Hard copies, e-issues, you know. If you, if you can afford it, you know, buy multiple copies with multiple covers. They're all great covers. So uh, there's a lot of cool stuff there. All that helps us out. And again, pre-ordering is incredibly helpful to us way more helpful than walking in the door and just buying it though. I'm not knocking that. If that's what you got, walk in the door and buy it, go for it. But uh, if you can, you know, take the time and afford to do it, pre-ordering is a huge help to us. I mean, and it really makes a much bigger difference than walking in the day up. Um, If you have have a little comic shop, ask for a subscription, they'll take care of it for you. Any good comic yeah. shop will, you know, pull lists, all that sort of stuff. That that's what makes a huge difference because those are the numbers, frankly, that uh, um, that dictate pre-orders and those uh, that dictate uh, print orders, uh, and um, and those are the numbers that uh, Dynamite's looking at predominantly um, to make decisions about weather and what to do next and so uh nothing tops pre-orders for us at this time um on both titles so um and we also have uh not too long from now the trade uh that collects the first six issues of here in manhattan coming out as well excellent looking forward to that i've already got it pre-ordered also the hardcover (laughs) yeah all right is there um, any, and I asked this question about the proof book, is there any art, piece of art that stands out to you in Dark Ages issue one the most? Uh, well, I, I really love the juxtaposition of the first two pages um, of uh, Hudson in 1997 and Mentor in 1971. Uh, I just love how... Uh, Drew uh, draws Hudson slash mentor, mentor in particular. Um, I uh, I think there's a lot of fun stuff um, with uh, Malcolm and Robert. Um, 
page four is fun. I also think when they're walking away, uh, that's pretty good. But if I had to, again, pick one, it would have to be uh, page 14, which is the page in the rookery where Mentor and Verity are talking um, and their relationship to each other, I think is just so loving and wonderful. Um, it it uh, it knocks me out of the park what Drew did on that page. Um, again, there's not a page I dislike. Um, I love the confrontation between Mentor and Hippolyta. Um, mm-hmm. And I love how he's drawing more youthful versions of characters we're familiar with. And he did some great human stuff, too, as the battle starts and everything. But uh, again, oh, make me pick great. one. Make me pick one page. If I only can pick one, it's going to be page 14, which is the the conversation between Mentor and uh, and Verity, uh, his mate. And, and that I, I just think is is so beautiful. I loved it, and I think I spotted the Archmage at one point too. Looking forward to more of him. The Archmage is definitely in the book. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Greg, I want to thank you for our first impressions and our listeners. Stick around for our discussion on Double Jeopardy. Thalog, finally. <laughs> this has been Nightwatch. Sleep well. I am Thalog. What? What kind of abomination are you? The same kind as you. It was your blood that spawned me. My blood! C-L-O-N-E. Clone? The only side effect seems to be an odd skin and hair pigmentation. The artificial maturation rate has been augmented by an ongoing subliminal education program. Personally designed by Mr. Xanatos to teach his own unique slant on things. The kid turned out to be a real chip off the old block. Indeed he did. All the old blocks. I should have known no copy could live up to the original. Listen how he tries to compare himself with you. You have sunk even lower than I imagined. Now, that's your friend's genetic makeup you're insulting. You mean that creature is still out there? It has the money, it's as powerful as Goliath, and it's smarter than you, Owen? I think I've created a monster. Welcome back, Argos fans, to another episode of Voices from the Eerie. I'm your co-host, Greg Bashansky. Unfortunately, Jennifer cannot be here tonight, but we wish her well, and hopefully, and she'll be back on for upgrade when we get to that one. But joining us is series co-creator and supervising producer and writer of the SLG and Dynamite comic book, Mr. Greg Wiseman, and returning the voice director of the series, Mr. Jamie Thomason. We do have a little bit of housekeeping to do. Number one, that little silly intro you heard before this with the Top Gun theme. The website that hosts us was founded on the Clone Saga Chronicles podcast, which uses that with Spider-Man Clone Saga quotes and jokes. So I figured since we're doing our own clone 
I would do an homage to that since without that show, there would have been no spectacular radio and thus no voices from the eerie. So to Zach, Gerard, Josh, and Donovan, thank you all for everything. And another bit of housekeeping that we do absolutely need to do, unfortunately, is there's this rumor. It's not even a rumor that popped up on a website called Giant Frickin' Robot. A lot of credibility with that name, by the way. Saying that there's a Gargoyles live-action movie in the works directed by Kenneth Branagh. There is not. They didn't cite any source at all. There's no quotations, no press release, nothing. This spread to a lot of other different clickbait sites. They're quoting this, or they're quoting the Belfast, whatever that is, which is quoting giant freaking robot. Don't just read headlines, people. Read articles and look for and cross-reference these things. Just do that. This is not happening. I believe Greg posted on Twitter he doesn't believe it's happening. And then today, just a about an hour ago, Nerdist posted they reached out to a Disney rep, and the Disney rep denied this. So then you're saying it's not happening. It's not happening. Right? What do you think? I I have heard I, – I don't think it's happening. I mean, I don't want to pretend I have some inside knowledge of Disney, um, but uh, no one's contacted me or my agent, and um, – uh, and it looks false to me. I have no reason to think there's any truth to it whatsoever. Um, and I would be very, very surprised if it turned out to have any truth to it at all. Um, so we can assume that you would have heard about it before it got to the yes. stage of. Well, you can know, assume that someone being attached. <laughs> I don't know that that's true, but you can assume it. <laughs> now you're giving hope or uh, pessimism to the people who think, well, maybe Greg doesn't know, which to be fair is probably true. But but no, this isn't about well, that. I mean, it's look, about... the, the honest truth is uh, Disney does not have to contact me. Now, in the past, historically, they have sometimes contacted me and sometimes not contacted me about the projects that have to do with gargoyles, most of which never happened anyway, whether they contacted me or not, they're not consistent about it. So I can't say for a hundred percent sure. I'm not trying to give people hope. I honestly believe this is false. I, I see nothing in the original article, let alone any of the follow-up articles to indicate anything remotely true about this. And I have reason to believe that I can't go into that it's false, but I don't know because Disney is under no obligation to consult with me. They do sometimes and sometimes they don't. Again, doing the Gargoyles comic book because Disney's happy to have me on board with that, but they have historically been inconsistent on that point. Right. So I guess we should get started with the episode because this one's a biggie. I'm going to say something about I've known some of my favorite superhero characters in relation to this. You could say that spite that Batman's well, Batman's greatest enemy is the Joker, but there are other two that you could name. It would be Two Face and probably Rachel Ghoul. While Spider Man has that triumvirate of the Green Goblin, Doc Ock, and Venom. Well, it is arguable you could say this that Xanatos and Demona were the Manhattan Clan's greatest enemies. And I think we may have met their third greatest enemy today in this episode. 
double jeopardy. Goliath's evil clone, but really he's more his quote-unquote bastard son. We'll talk about archetypes momentarily. Thalog. Greg, how did this character come about? Uh, well, they're sort of two origins. Um, I mean, they're not incompatible. They're both true. Um, but the first thing was when we were mixing the movie version of the pilot, um, we were doing that on the Disney lot. So most of our sound work was done at uh, Advantage Audio on this show uh, in North Hollywood. Um, but because we were under the gun time-wise, Frank was doing the five episode series version at it advantage while I was literally simultaneously mixing the, uh, movie version, the 80 minute movie version, which was cut down from those five episodes over on the Disney lot. And, um, there was one sequence that was given the engineers a little trouble. I don't remember why it's just too long ago, but they just kept playing it over and over and over again. What that meant was they would play it forward, make an adjustment, rewind it, play it again, rewind it. And, and usually in my experience, when things are rewound, um, there's a sort of, most of the time it mutes, but at this particular mix, it wasn't the the rewind wasn't muting. So I kept hearing this word over and over again, thalog, 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 and thinking, what the heck is that? And then eventually I realized it was Elisa saying Goliath, only it was in reverse and it was coming out. You know, I wouldn't even think thalog is the sound it would make, frankly, but that's what it was sounding like, thalog. And I thought, that's a great name. Um, and then you get down the road a bit, and a lot of the reason Thalog exists, I mean, that's where the name came from, but a lot of the reason Thalog exists is, is literally the incredible talent of Keith David. Um, that he was just so good as Goliath and so good in the occasional other role like Morgan the Cop uh, or uh, the guy who wore the witch mask on Halloween, you know, um, every little thing Keith did was so good. And the, the one thing that he didn't really have the opportunity to do on our show was to be a villain. I mean, Goliath is for all his power is very contained, you know, almost like he feels it's his responsibility to be contained. And then when he, does get angry it's with the big roars and all that kind of stuff but i felt like there was a whole aspect of keith's talent that we were missing out on that we should be taking advantage of and um i'm sure jamie you, you must remember this too it was just sort of like okay let's do goliath's clone we'll call him thalog which is goliath not spelled backwards but said backwards yeah. um and um, and let's make this guy physically Goliath, which means he's got Keith's voice, but let's make his mindset Xanatosian. And what would Goliath be like with Xanatos's mindset and with a little more anger, just a touch more anger 
than than Xanatos actually has. Xanatos is rarely angry. He actually does get angry in this episode, but not much. Um, but that's uh, oh, show, right? Um, but let's give this guy just a little more bitterness, um, and we'll give him daddy issues, and we'll give him daddy issues times three. You know, he's got not just Goliath as a father, but Xanatos as a father. And just to make it really weird, <laughs> let's give him Anton Severus as a father too. Um, and uh, three men and a baby. Right. And let's just see what happens. And um, what happens was gold. And when you say, is Thalog, you know, the third villain in the Gargoyles villain triumvirate, I think the, I don't think the answer was yes as of this episode, but this episode was consciously designed to set him up to be that third villain going forward. And if anything, uh, you know, given the fact that Xanatos um, post season two is a much more complex figure vis-a-vis the gargoyles. It's not that he's not capable of villainy. It's not that he's not capable of a lot of things, but his relationship with them is way more complex than that. He's, um, their benefactor again, and and all sorts of things that make him way more complex. And in a lot of ways, Thalog has sort of stepped up and become, um, I'd say, even a bigger villain in in their lives than uh, Xanatos. I mean, no one tops Demona in terms of that, but, but Thalog's like very close second. And Xanatos is still up there. It's just that his relationship with the Gargoyles is now extremely complex and interconnected it's not as straightforward a villain role as it was in the first two seasons of the show not that Thalog's connection to them isn't complicated and right rife with all of its own so Jamie what was it like directing Keith in this double role if you remember just arduous just trying to pull a performance (laughs) out of Keith I mean yeah, no, it was it was a delight. It was something that we had talked about a fair amount before. You know, we actually got into the to the booth way back when Greg first came up with the idea for the episode or for the character, um, and uh, to expand a bit on what you know Greg was saying, Keith is so good. He's so good that yeah, uh, you don't always realize it you don't not only does he make it look so easy um a great sign of a great actor is uh you can't tell they're acting you don't see them acting and uh keith has that in in spades you know much of the time um he while uh we were doing i don't remember at what point uh in the series but he was uh doing uh what's the one man show cole uh, he seven guitars. Cool. Wasn't it seven guitars? Was it, seven was guitars wasn't, wasn't a one man show. No, no, no. But wasn't oh. he doing a one man show? Uh, was it? As, was it that King Cole? Was it? Some. I, he. Uh, I can't remember. He did. Uh, it was a smooth Paul singer. Robeson. Paul Robeson. Yes. But that was later. That wasn't while we were making this. No, show. no. But there was something back then, or it was before. He anyway, really wanted to is, do the Nat King Cole story. He wanted to, but I don't. That maybe that's what I'm thinking. Did. Maybe that's what. But I think he must. But he have was done in like seven a, guitars uh, while we were in. While we yes, were that I show. that I know. But I, I think it was. I think he did some sort of a one man one act 
showcase kind of thing. And King Cole is trying to help sell that piece or something. I, that, in my mind, it's connected to that. The point is smooth, really smooth, cool, the, you know, the opposite of Goliath, who, you know, Greg said that Goliath is contained a lot of the time. Um, and he's contained virtually all the time until he explodes. But there's a, you know, a deep roiling intensity. Everything he does is it's brimming under the surface. Um, and uh, one of the sort of most fantastic nuances that you might not necessarily instantly see when you uh, watch and listen to the episode, it's not just that Keith is doing Thalog uh, and Thalog is a villain, the opposite of Goliath. It's specifically that um, the, the villainy in him was programmed into him. Uh, how, what's the phrase they use? Educated his humanity. Unsubliminal education program, yeah. But, but from, specifically from Xanatos, you know. Mm -hmm, and, right. um, and what's in there is it's not just that he's um, you know, doing a, a villainous sort of. It's specifically Xanatos influenced because he had been in the room, you know, a fair amount, uh, you know, with uh, uh, when we were doing that. And I was just rewatching it in preparation for this. And it's so good and it's so subtle. There are a couple lines that I thought, oh, oh yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly how Xanatos would do it. And it wasn't some sort of signature broad thing. It was just a simple little line. Um, and it's such a, just a, there's so many levels of subtle nuance going on. He's so dang good, so good. Um, you know, there's, there's uh, just like a little, whatever. He enjoys, the, the villain of Thalog enjoys his villainy. So there's like a yeah, little, a little villainous smile under everything he does, everything he's saying. Um, but like Greg says, there's a little more bite, a little more spit, a little more poison behind it. Um, because Xanatos, again, part of Xanatos' thing is that he's, you know, Kennedy-esque. He's so relaxed in his villainy. Thalog is uh, more into it. I tend to think that th what Thalog gets from Severius would probably be the theatricality. I, it could be. I don't know that uh, Severius's personality is programmed in there anywhere, but um, I, it's suppose that's a possibility. Severius is one of my favorite characters. So fun. Can't go wrong with Tim. Even Curry. more so when we first, when we very first meet him, um, it's uh, was it Metamorphosis? Is that it? Yes. Something like that. Yeah. And you know, for the first three quarters of that episode, he's doing as theatrical as, as Severius is. He's doing Severius doing doing this this you know, uh, you know very uh, broad German. Gosh. Nazi Dutch, was that what it was? Yeah. Yes, but that's exactly what it was. It was a, a yeah, Nazi you know, scientist. Mangala. <laughs> and, 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 and Tim always had this way of uh, chewing his, I mean, it sounds almost like he's eating French fries as he's talking. It's everything is so yeah, delicious. And then he puts on this broad theatricality and then on top of that, this uh, Nazi evil scientist, and he's just chewing it up. It's so great. And then when we see him at the end, he's so like just subtle, underplayed. I thought my death scene was 
spectacular or whatever he says. This is another episode I know, but that's when we first meet him. Um, but yeah, between uh, I mean, in this one, so much but, fun in this one. Oh yeah, I mean that scene with him and Xanatos oh, on we'll oil got him there. Up. Yes, we'll, we'll get oh, there. We'll get there. Oh, what? Oh, oh, I, I, oh, don't say, don't talk about that yet. Okay, sorry. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> Take but control, no, Bashansky. Take control. Sorry. I'm doing my best here. <laughs> All right. Sorry, you want to talk more, anyway, talk more about Keith and Taylor? Sorry. Uh, well, we'll do that throughout the episode as well. But um, okay. let's also talk about, before we dive into this, you know, building a great villain. I mean, you've talked about reversals of heroes in the past, and Thalog is that to a T. But I think what adds a little a different element there, which I really appreciate it, evil twins are a dime a dozen. You've got Negaduck, you've got, uh, you know, you got the reverse Flash, you've got a lot of them out there. But um, it's not that he's an evil twin. He's also the son, you know, after a, a fact. As yeah, I mean, Elisa, right? Yeah, I think that that's a uh, an important distinction. You know, it, it this isn't it, it becomes uh, thematic, I guess, in my work. But uh, this was the first time I took a, sh- a shot at that, and um, I mean, with the help, obviously, of Carrie Bates, who wrote and story edited the episode, um, and did a fantastic job with mm-hmm. it. Um, but it's this idea of, hey, this isn't a kid I asked for. This isn't a kid I planned for. This isn't a kid I wanted. That's not the kid's fault. Um, and so it takes Goliath a half a minute to get his head on straight about it. And that is half a minute too long from Thalog's yep. point of view. Um, you know, uh, you get the feeling that when push came to shove, even if Goliath had reacted wonderfully from moment one, which he did not, um, they would not have had much of a meeting of the minds because Thalog was too much like Xanatos for them to truly get along, but it might not have gone quite as badly (laughs) as it did. (laughs) Certainly not as, not as instantly. Right. Um, and that's on Goliath. And that always, you know, that's something that thematically, again, just sort of interests me is that um, you can't always count on even the heroes to have the instantaneous perfect reaction. I, I think that's, you know, we'd all like our heroes to be perfect every second, but I don't think that's realistic. And it seemed to me, I mean, Keith has this great line here where it's like, you know, Xantos took the castle, blah, 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 this, this, and now he's piecing out my very soul, you know? And I, and I love that line. I don't know if Carrie wrote it or I wrote it. Uh, um, but, uh, either way, it's the way Keith reads it, you know, know, that's what I'm going to go with. Okay. Fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) But my point is, is that, you actually feel his soul mm-hmm. getting pieced out the way he read it. You just feel like he's been violated and it's tearing. That's what it is. Tearing him apart. And exactly. Um, and Elisa is there to be this voice to say, 
that's not this guy's fault. That's Xanatos's fault. That's Savarius's fault. You're blaming the wrong, you know, guy right this minute. And 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 Goliath being um <laughs> this is gonna sound funny, but I always sort of connect Goliath up when I'm writing him with Winnie the Pooh. Um it's they're practically the I- mirrors. It's the idea that <laughs> Goliath is smart, but he's not swift. Or, uh, you know, in other words, he's coming from a, a culture that is so different, both in terms of species, but also in terms of time, you know, the era that he was raised in. That, you know, getting to getting his head around these concepts, uh, let alone these science fiction concepts like cloning, but even just like modern concepts, like what, what is a city now, as opposed to what a city, where do the threats come to um, from all this sort of thing. That's something that he's got to have a little time to get his brain around. Um, And uh, you know, and once he does, he usually uh, almost always does the right thing, but he, doesn't necessarily do it instantaneously. Um, and that to me is one of the things that make him lovable, you know, um, is that is not that he's perfect, but that he's far from perfect, but that he'll come around to the right thing eventually. But in essence, in this episode, since I'm using old Disney references, you know, Lisa's his Jiminy Cricket here. She, <laughs> she's on his shoulder and saying, think about what you're saying here. And he goes, yeah, 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 that's right. I got to get my head on straight. And then he does, but it's too late. I might go with Christopher Robin in this particular instance, but that's, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, and is in his defense, uh, he has a visceral reaction to it. And um, Elisa has, uh, the benefit of, um, you know, perspective uh, on it, but his instant reaction is, you know, it's visceral. Uh, Greg used the the word uh, like tearing apart, like his soul's being, you know, rendered asunder. You know, it's being ripped from him, um, and that's his instant reaction. Freaking, it's not. He's not even thinking about Thalog. He's thinking about Xanatos. Right? What's the first thing he says? Not this thing's an abomination. The first thing he says is freaking Xanatos. He steals this, he steals this, and now he steals my very soul. And so that's what the Fury's about. Um, mm-hmm. And that's one of those instances where we were talking about, for the most part, Goliath. Goliath is so contained, but the intensity is just roiling just beneath the surface until it bursts out. And this is a perfect example of that. Um, but uh, to his great credit, like Greg was saying, uh, when Christopher Robin points out to Pooh, um, well, actually, Pooh Bear, when you think about it, and he's very open to listening and learning, which he does from episode one throughout this entire thing. Um, and, uh, and I think from no source more so than Elisa, you know, Elisa points out something. He doesn't say, shut up and backhand her. He stops, <laughs> instantly hears and realizes you know, uh, he's uh, a fantastic character. Uh, and again, Keith's 
performance, and that's another great example, that scene, so damn good. In both Again, roles. Do you yeah, remember? Say, yeah, we, both his characters. Do you remember? Because I, I really yes, don't remember. We recorded um, them. Did, so we he just kept them. going back and forth. But we didn't do all of Goliath's life well, and all of Thalos. No, I can't remember. No, we did. We, um, we would do all of Goliath's. We did a combination, like all Goliaths, all of Thalog. And then um, in some instances, we circled back now that he had done them both. And, he, you know, we could sort of go with his muscle memory and, you know, go back and forth. Um, but for the most part, I, well, you know what? Later on in the series, we may have done more of that just going back, you know, had him reading against himself. Um, mm -hmm. But up front, you know, it was because Goliath, he knew Thalog was something that he had to, you know, that he had to get into and stay in, um, which he did fantastically. And it's so subtle. I mean, if this was Winnie the Pooh and Tigger, for example, those characters are very different. And uh, for one person to go back and forth, it's phenomenal. But um, it would be more difficult to do something like that with something as subtle as uh, Thalog in particular. You know, Goliath, again, he already lived and breathed that, but it was, but sliding into the subtlety of Thalog and then coming back to Goliath, and then that would be a trick, particularly the, up front. The record, we know this, but the audience may not. The uh, Jim Cummings, has for years been the voice of both Winnie the Pooh and Tigger. So when Jamie was saying that, he was talking about how Jim would go back and forth between. Uh, and Pooh it's amazing. And He's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, he has conversations with Pooh and Tigger where you swear they're overlapping, you know, like they're interrupting each other. And you close your eyes, and there are two different characters, uh, you know. And of course, Jim Cummings for us is the, is the voice of Dingo. Um, Dingo. Yes. All right, because Jim thought. Cummings was the voice of Monterey Jack in in uh, Rescue Rangers, and I loved that voice. And I said, "Let's use that for Dingo." <laughs> <laughs> nice. But he's also one All of the right. people that did that uh, Australian really subtly, really well. There were a lot of yeah. people that did sort of really broad shrimp on the bottom kind of stuff, but Jim did a really nice subtle one. Okay. Yeah. All right. Time to dive into the episode itself. I love that opening. It's a great way for Xanatos to acquire Goliath's DNA. But what I really like about it is we're paralleling the first quote unquote Goliath double or Xanatos' attempts to recreate his own Goliath with his final attempt because um, I don't think he tries again after Thalog. No, I think he, he's tried three times. He tried with the Steel Clan. With uh, the mutates and Talon, and with Thalog, by the time he gets to Thalog, he's like, "This is not a good plan." <laughs> <laughs> enough is enough. He's done. I, I always thought that opening worked pretty well. Um, you know, it's an interesting episode from an animation standpoint. There is some gorgeous animation in there, and some sucky animation in there. It's a real mix. Um, I mean, a lot of times we talk about it episodes and we're like oh this is not one of our better ones or this is one of our great ones this was odd to me because there's 
there's some really terrific stuff in there. And then, and I'm not used to that. I'm not uh, on gargoyles. I'm not used to seeing, uh, usually we either got good stuff or not so good stuff. And sometimes we got great stuff. Um, I this think one they was subcontracted weird, somehow. Yeah, pieces of it. They must have, because this was a weird mix. But the animation aside, uh, what would have been lovely if we had had, and so much on Gargoyles involved serendipity, and but some amount of forethought and laying pipe and all this sort of thing. It would have been great if there had been a scene that we could have just lifted out of a previous episode to explain how Xanatos Owen and Savarius wind up with Goliath's DNA. And I, and unfortunately there wasn't because we just didn't have the idea for Thalog early enough in the series. So we add the scene into the mm-hmm. continuity. It's one year ago and the scene makes sense. I mean, we were real careful to make sure it fit into the whole back in the day time when Elisa was telling Goliath, he had to leave the castle and Goliath was stubbornly saying, no, I won that battle in the pilot. If I win, I don't have to leave, right? That's how it works. And Elise is trying to explain. Yeah, modern world, that's not how it works. As much as you may want to think so, it isn't. Um, and so I think it it fits, and it's a nice moment with her, a nice moment with him. The robot is fun, and then Owen is always fun, always. Um, but, uh, but I do wish, I, I felt like that was a moment where our gears were showing. And and oftentimes on this show, again, partially with forethought, there's a good example of that a little bit later in the episode where um, Xanatos and Owen talk about the Emir again. And the first time the Emir was mentioned mm-hmm. way back in the edge, that was a Michael Reeves throwaway line. But by the time you get to this episode, we had in mind I'm, the whole Amir episode that's coming up down the road. So we intentionally planted one more feed of that. And so it's a combination of Michael Reeves throws out a line about an Amir because that makes Xanatos sound important that he's got meetings with Amirs. And I pick up on that and, and give it to Carrie so that we can plant one more seed. That feels seamless to me. And unfortunately this scene, um, I think it shows the gears, you know, it's not quite seamless. We didn't prep for this because we just didn't know. I think it works fine. I'm not. uh, It it does. And I think that only only you think that the gears are showing there, Um, (laughs) you know, and it's one of the things that, that Greg in particular, and I didn't know this at the time, but now I've had the pleasure of uh, working on multiple projects. (laughs) And now I know it's one of his signatures. I mean, a line will be dropped in, you know, episode two of season one. That's really not meant to pay off until season two or season three. Uh, you know, he they beat out these arcs so far uh, in advance and so intricately so often. Um, and uh, much more so than anyone I've ever, certainly anyone I've ever, anyone else I've ever worked with. Um, or at any other show I can think of. But I think that's why you're particularly sensitive to the fact that, why didn't I think of this 
before we ever started this series. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and this was my first job as a showrunner, so or co-showrunner with Frank, and um, so we learned a lot of lessons on this show. This is one of them. On the way. Uh, yeah. One of my favorite. Uh, speaking of that scene, um, and you were talking about Owen always being fun, is the um, when uh, Lex and uh, Broadway, you know, Lex hacks into the computer on his first guess, uh, password or whatever. But um, and then you see that same scene, you know, in black and white on the monitor, where mon- where Owen walks up and you know swaps for his DNA. Ultimately, we find out, but. But there's narration going on during it. And so, but as we're watching the black and white monitor and Owen comes walking up, Owen's lip synced to the narration that's going on. And it's just for a few words. I know, I saw that. So most people wouldn't <laughs> see it, but I saw that. And I thought, wait, what? And so I went back to the first scene to watch because I know he was speaking during the first scene. And let me just see the first scene. Yeah, he's speaking, but he is not. Those are not the same lips that just by chance happen to sync up. I just thought that was... Funny in the combination. That's, of, that's a situation hey, where fun. overseas they're trying to yeah. do us a favor. They're like, "Oh, this isn't syncing up. Well, we can fix that." Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I and I also enjoy that scene. And uh, I'm assuming that's off of the Long Island Sound. There is a nuclear power plant out there, the Shoreman plant, and it's uh, located next to Long Island Sound, which is where I assume the Black Rock Point oil rig ultimately is. And the way Thalog, I mean, Thalog masterfully presents a mystery for them to solve. I mean, just uh, attacking them in the middle of a storm, laughing in the dark, and uh, not allowing a good glimpse of him. Yeah, I, I think um, ultimately I didn't want Thog to be a literal double for Goliath, like so that we were constantly playing, wait, which one is it? You know, mm-hmm. but I did think, okay, let's spend a little time throwing the audience you know um that's certainly goliath's voice that silhouette is certainly goliath's silhouette then we but see thalog frozen in stone back at the castle and xanatos saying that he's glad he's here um i did want the audience going what the hell is up with goliath for a bit but then ultimately um i just felt like again it, the idea of having someone who looks exactly like your hero so that he could take the hero's place and fool everybody. I didn't want to play that. I, I didn't want to, uh, the whole point of this was it to wasn't give an Keith evil the twin. freedom to give Keith the freedom to play Thalog. If he's constantly got to play Thalog playing Goliath, it's not that that's not a subtlety Keith could handle. Of course, Keith could do it, but, um, but then he doesn't get to play Thalog. He's mm-hmm. constantly got to play Thalog acting. And um, and I didn't want to do that. And I also, um, just visually, um, this goes back to what, I mean, again, the obscure things in my brain. But when John Byrne was doing the Fantastic Four um, in the 80s, uh, he sent yeah, the Fantastic Four four to the negative zone and when they come back their costumes have been altered by their time in the zone the costumes are made of quote-unquote unstable molecules and their time in the zone has changed it and the changes 
I mean, logically ridiculous, but uh, but it was just visually incredibly cool. They went from having light blue costumes with black, you know, black collars, black, uh, you know, cuffs and the black four on their chest to dark blue costumes with white. And it was just such a striking change. And I thought, okay, let's do something similar with Goliath here in Thalog. So instead of the black hair, let's do the white hair. Instead of the white eyes, let's do the red eyes. Instead of the sort of, what would you call it? Lavender? What color skin would you say Goliath Lavender. Is? Like Lavender. Lavender. Let's go for a dark purple, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> and it, and I was, and I suggested this, the colorblind guy is suggesting colors to um, Frank and, and our colors. <laughs> but damn if I wasn't right. You know, in other words, you see it. And um, and that is a striking change. Everything else about the model is Goliath in this episode. Later, he'll get armor and stuff like that. But in this episode, he's wearing a loincloth. Everything about him is very, you know, again, in silhouette, it is Goliath. But then, you know, the moment you see him, it's like, well, okay, no one's going to mistake Thalog for Goliath ever again. Um, and, and very and easy that just interested to. me much more than playing, uh, you know, not that you can't get good stories out of it, but for this particular character, that interested me much more than playing, oh, he's kidnapped Goliath and is posing as him. Isn't that sneaky, you know, kind of. Stuff. I, I wanted him to be a big villain, not a, not a, um, an imposter. He's not an imposter. He's his own man, so to speak. And for that, I needed any thought that he could pose as Goliath. We got to throw that out. And thus mission, the visual differences. Mission accomplished. Sometimes I forget he's Goliath's clone because I, Eventually, I just stopped thinking of him that way. Yeah. It's just, Speaking uh, of that, watch the episode. Close your eyes during one of those scenes. I have. You it's can always the exact tell same voice. The exact same voice, but you know exactly which character is speaking, and it's. I mean, it's not from some sort of broad thing either. It's just very subtle, and yet, right? It's you the feel acting. the difference. Yeah, so good. So mm. nuanced. And this episode is so full of some great lines. Lexington has his makes my hair stand on end if I had any. And then I there's Hudson's. Any. Do you even know how to laugh maniac? Yeah. I almost right. said that. With, yeah. And that one was that one was mine. But the thing <laughs> that's funny about that is that I'd forgotten that Glyph had in fact laughed maniacally once before. I'd completely forgotten about it. But in Enter Macbeth, when Macbeth says to him, you know, I've kidnapped you to lure Demona here, your queen. Goliath starts laughing maniacally in that scene because he finds it so preposterous, this notion that Demona, who's tried to kill him three times by this time, um, would ever uh, come to their rescue. But even but that time laugh of, is more earnest. There's a more... Yeah. But, the, uh, but again, no one laughs maniacally like Daylock. Nobody. I mean... It's awesome. It is just fantastic. <clears throat> and if you had to pick but one I love moment Hudson's to line. exemplify, yeah, well, and it's a per, you know, I, I hate spunk. It's a perfect Hudson line. But uh, you were talking about originally, you know, to give Keith the opportunity to 
to play a villain, a true sort of, you know, classic really cut loose, villain to yeah. get him out of his gut. Um, you know, that maniacal, if you had to pick one moment, that maniacal laugh is sort of quintessential to that. Mm-hmm. The quintessence of. And he chewed Compl- it up. Completely. And uh, it's just, I mean, this is such a great episode, so many great moments. And we almost think we're getting out of character Goliath or Goliath like himself. Xanatos is stepping close to being out of character on this. He even admits he's not by nature a vengeful man. An example must be made. At some point, he's angry at the theft, quote or ki- more accurately, kidnapping, or so he thinks. It's uh, we don't see him this way often. No, he's off his game. Yeah, he is off his game. He is someone trusted. Yeah, I mean, Goliath meets his match here physically, right? Xanatos meets his match here <laughs> mentally. We have a, I mean, we're getting ahead of ourselves, but we have a classic Xanatos tag uh, at the end of this episode. And it's not for Xanatos, it's for Thalog. But it's Xanatos well, realizing, <laughs> it's Xanatos realizing it's for Thalog. It's, what it's, uh, yeah, it's a, terrific moment but yeah xanatos is off his game in this one um it's all gotten ahead of him it's all gotten you know the boulders rolling downhill and he's trying to play catch up and he is two or three steps behind the entire way he's out and that is not typical for him and so yeah he's off he's thrown yeah and considering what's going on for savarius's mind throughout all this he thinks that all three of them are cooperating he thinks Thalog is in on the plan when when uh, that merc- when that Jeff Bennett voice Arnold Schwarzenegger mercenary shows up mm-hmm. with Thalog. I don't think that shrank was for Thalog. Uh, I think that it was just in case Thalog got a little out of control. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that the idea is, yeah, we don't want any witnesses here. Um. And you'll notice you never see those mercenaries again in the show because mm-hmm. in our mind, you know, it's like, just, you know, because Severi says to him, I want you to meet me here, but after dark. Because, mm-hmm. you know, he could have paid off the mercenaries and let them fly off and they'd never be the wiser. We stole a statue for some crazy scientist guy. Okay, fine, whatever. I mean, who would know? Well, Thalog who's running the show, even if we don't know it yet, um, he'd know. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want any witnesses around. And so um, meet after dark because we're going to take these guys <laughs> out. <laughs> um, and uh, I think Savarius, I do think the trank was for Thalog, but I think it was a fail safe for Savarius. Like uh, if Thalog gets a little bloodthirsty after taking out all these mercenaries, I need some protection. <laughs> I think, of course, it wouldn't have protected him last time. <laughs> Fair enough. But, uh, yeah. That was, I think, his idea. And I just love how this is played as a mystery, but Thalog is leaving him clues designed for them to find. He's drawing them all in. It's really masterfully pay- played. So our heroes are playing detective, but they're also dancing to Thalog's tune. And uh, mm-hmm. they don't even know he exists yet at this point. And uh, there's some, so we see them figuring out what's going on. That, they're lured, Goliath and Lisa are lured to Black Rock Point. Lexington and Broadway are lured to Genutech to learn about him. I'm pretty sure that was deliberate on Thalog's part also. 
and Xanatos and Owen are lured into come into quote unquote take care of Severius, or at the very least Xanatos is by himself, even bringing the money. Oh, and um fun fact. There are bill. There were used to be bills in ten thousand dollar denominations, and <laughs> the person on them was Abraham Lincoln's Treasury Secretary Salmon P. Chase. And uh, I'll mention it here now because Jen, even though she's not here, her presence is still felt, and we hope to hear from her again very soon. She pointed out accurately that twenty million dollars in today's money from nineteen ninety five would be forty one point two million. And while I'm on the subject, I also like the parallel that Xanatos built his fortune off of twenty grand. Thalog built his off of twenty million. I don't know if that was a little yeah. bit, but it's a, but it's cool. I'm guessing it was. I don't remember, <laughs> but it's a you know the twenty twenty thing sounds like something that we would have consciously chosen. Um, the twenty grand in nineteen seventy five, twenty million in nineteen ninety five. Um, that sort of idea um, uh, appeals to it me now. Like My guess is it appealed to me. It would have appealed to me back then. As far as numbers go, you were usually conscious in choosing them. Kids' birthdays and that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah, we'll talk about that in a moment. And little pieces of um, continuity, Broadway continuing to learn how to read before we watch the mm-hmm. quote-unquote slideshow. It's not really a slideshow. It's a it's a video log, but it's um, Greg. I believe there's some significant dates in there for you. Awesome. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I can't. I, I didn't take them down last night when I was rewatching them, so I don't remember what dates there were. But uh, that's pretty typical of me to use like family birthdays and stuff whenever possible. Like I don't, I won't shift the show to like make it happen but if it's like oh this had to happen sometime in august then the odds are i'll use august 8th because that's my daughter's birthday and you know it's just a bummer my son wasn't born when Hargoyles was done (laughs) again you didn't think ahead there's no march 21st i didn't plan ahead enough so when my daughter watches gargoyles she gets her date but my son never (laughs) does But I tried to make it up to him in in Young Justice and and stuff. Yeah, maybe in the comics. But uh, yeah, back in the day, it was hard to put my son's birthday in there years before he was born. (laughs) What with him not existing? (laughs) One of the things that interests me is that uh, that subliminal education that Xantos gave Thalog, and it it makes me think back to Vows, our discussion on Vows, or Xantos and Petros are quote unquote arguing. You're all about acquisition. Yeah, I'm all about acquisition. How David doesn't realize that he's more complicated. He himself is more complicated than that. So he's programming Thalog with all this stuff that he believes, or at least be- thinks that he believes, but none of the positive things he believes in, like we'll come to see family. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, this is a a huge error. <laughs> I mean, Oops. it's like, you know, uh, you're taking the lessons that Xanatos felt he's learned, but you're taking them out of context and giving them to, in essence, a blank slate mind, mm-hmm. which is what Thalogs was. Um, and, and, uh, hence the result, you know, <laughs> 
Uh, it's he not, certainly learned the Machiavellian. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. he he learned uh, all these uh, great amoral tenets without any connection to humanity um, or gargoyleity or whatever you want to call it. <laughs> um, and uh, that's going to be a problem for a lot of people, including David himself. Very much so. Now, let's talk about that confrontation on the oil rig. Xantos and Severius. Severius is hammy acting. Thank you, Tim Curry, but also thank mm-hmm. you, Jamie Thomason. No, I just got to enjoy well, I mean, being there. Again, the, the thing there for me is is this is two things. One is uh, the great contrast between what Tim's <laughs> doing when he's on. Oh, you stole my creation, you know, stuff. And when he's like, being conspiratorial with Santa. Yeah, yeah, oh, snap. Yeah, you know, uh, yeah. you know, uh, oh, I get it. They're watching us. I see. I got to keep, God. I got to keep the act going. You know, <laughs> I'm with you, you know, um, and that's and instantly verily unto thee. Yeah. He's a goofball. Yeah. But really into it, you know, as the conspirator, co-conspirator. And then he's this incredibly broad <laughs> villain, you know, uh, play acting at it but the thing that i really love about it is i just love the cross-purposeness of their conversation that and this i gotta uh you know give a lot of credit obviously jonathan and tim did amazing stuff and and jamie brought it out of them but i really want to give credit to carrie here because you've got each of them saying things that they think has a certain meaning to the person they're talking Mm -hmm. to when in fact it has almost the opposite meaning in every single case. So it takes Xanatos all the way to Tim doing the big broad thing where, where Xanatos is looking at him like, what the what hell the... is this guy doing? To Tim going, how was that? Yeah, pretty cool. Yeah. And then, and Xanatos has this look on his face like, what the <laughs> hell is going on here? Like he knows it's, Clearly not what he thought it was, but he is not yet able to put two and two together because so much of the cross talk in there, the cross purpose talk in their conversation, he thought was Mm -hmm. lending itself to what his pre-interpretation of the events was. And it's only at the very end here that he realizes, no, 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 I've got it wrong, but I don't know what's right yet. And of course, Severus has no clue that he's wrong at all. He just still thinks this is part of the game. Yeah, and Xanatos uh, doesn't really get it until Severus literally spells it out for him. You sent me an electronic mail. Electronic, electronic mail, mail. 1995. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's technology. true. Right, but he spells it out for him. You said that right. this whole thing. And then he's pretty it's, quick to pick up on what's going on after that. But yeah, it's fun. I, I do love the one moment where he, where they're trying to figure out who who's behind it, <sighs> and Severus goes Owen Fox because, and Xantos immediately like he's got no <laughs> worry whatsoever that I either Owen or Fox would betray him. Never. That doesn't even merit consideration. And so Severus at that point is like, well, who else had access to the castle? Well, there's one person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And earlier in the episode, he was, he was listening to Mona Mc, 
earlier in the episode, he was listening to Mona, Macbeth, and even Renard as suspects, and I'm pretty sure Renard wouldn't do this, but... <laughs> Out of his comfort zone, anyway. But Demona and Macbeth totally would, but we'll talk about Demona vis-a-vis Thalog much later on. And uh, it's... Uh, and we already briefly talked talk about that first encounter between Goliath and uh, Thalog with Lisa Tenor. We talked about that in detail, but I just love how fast Thalog is with that gas, and he has no qualms at that moment about just looking at the kind of face, scaring the crap out of Elisa, that face and voice that she had come to trust. And here it is, laughing maniacally in her face, eyes burning red and advancing on her. It's a really nice uh, commercial cliffhanger. Yeah. Getting in her face and her reaction. Yeah, totally. That was like she came to his defense, you know, like 30 seconds prior. And I think he's sympathetic to her for that reason is what's funny. Um, he likes I think her. That, uh, yeah. Uh, he's a little into her almost creepily. Into little, yeah, her. Little, um, caresses her. Face. Yeah. You know, um, you know, Goliath has barely realized after knowing her for over a year that he's into her. They like gets it like that. Yeah. Um, he doesn't know much because he doesn't have likes. any. Uh, he's all it, you know. Mm-hmm. There's no super ego there telling him, "Well, this is not appropriate." He's all it, um, and uh, so he gets it instantly. But you know, there's some lovely stuff with Elisa here. You know, um, the idea, I guess, uh, which was Carrie's, uh, like, oh well, she can get out of her her manacles you know and uh one of the more great line i love i love a girl with delicate wrists Um, (laughs) but what you see in the animation is that she's been manacled over her the folds of her jacket jacket and so and so she's able to slip her hand out because it's not clamped tight around her wrist. It's actually, you know, there's padding in there that she can slip it out of. Because I, I had this fear that this was just too artificial a solution that, that Elisa, but between Carrie and um, Frank, who directed the episode, they're like, no, no, we can do this. We can make it work and make it play for real. And then, so the line though, about you work with handcuffs as much as I do, you learn a few tricks and it's like, well, that makes sense, I guess. Um, uh, you know, she's seen people get out of handcuffs and she, and she knows how to protect against it because she's a cop and all that sort of stuff. Um, but she also knows those tricks. Um, you know, uh, it was always important to us that Elisa not just devolve into a damsel in distress, you know, um, there's no way she's as physically powerful as Goliath, but she has a lot of other qualities that, um, that level that playing field. Delicate wrists among them. And, right. And now that <laughs> meeting of the minds, and I don't say that sarcastically at all, Thalog confronting them inside of the oil rig, all three of his fathers manacled. And it's just, you learn so much about them so quickly. I mean, that line about inferior, hu- inferior humans, you know, not wanting to waste his life playing guardian angel night after night. 
even briefly considering sharing that money with Goliath. And like we said earlier, calling him an abomination or not, I think these two would have been at odds at some point anyway. Well, philosophically, I, they're completely at odds. I mean, it may not have happened as instantly if Goliath initially welcomed with the, my boy. But as soon as the plan would have been spoken, there's no way Goliath's on board with that. And, and he still tries to bring him into his clan. He still tries to invite him into his clan, Goliath. It's, um, it's, uh, it says a lot about him. And um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about his relationship with Angela and compare it vis-a-vis this when we get to Sanctuary, of course. But um, it's, uh, I don't know, it's very heroic how forgiving he's. Even despite being manacled, despite that intent to murder them, he still is willing to keep reaching out and... Uh, I think it takes him a little while to grok to just what a monster Thalog actually is, but to the point where even afterwards, when they think he's dead briefly and Xantos coldly refers to Thalog as a copy, Goliath has that wonderful line that, that copy was a living being. Yeah, and we all failed him. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, because that's who Goliath is, you know, again. Mm-hmm instantaneous reactions aside when you get down to the core of who goliath is um he is an optimist he believes in redemption he believes that um you know people deserve second chances he um he takes seriously he his believes that as- yeah and and you know he is the leader of the clan and this is a gargoyle and Mm-hmm. we should bring this gargoyle into the clan and it it's all again one of the things that's great about Thalog almost incidentally is yes we give Keith Thalog so he can have fun and cut loose as the villain right but what it also does is it creates this great contrast with Goliath and you actually learn quite a bit more about Goliath because mm-hmm. Thalog was present and Keith of course plays every moment of that every millimoment of it you know um he is so good that he not only cuts loose as the villain but it actually brings more uh humanity no pun intended to the to the hero tenderness yeah um and you learn much more about goliath with thalog in the room um you know, we've talked about it before. I've got these theories about what makes a good villain, and and the, and the short hand version of that is, you want your hero looking in a in some kind of funhouse mirror, and all the mirrors do different things. You know, um, but uh, you know, the obvious example is, you know, Batman is order, Joker is chaos. But Batman's also the world's greatest detective. And so you put him up against Riddler, who is the world's greatest puzzle maker. You know, um, you you want in one way or another to create these mirrors uh, for your characters. Rachel Ghoul is this wealthy, um, from his point of view, benevolent leader just as bruce wayne is um but what if bruce wayne you know turned dark that's what rachel ghoul is 
I mean, it's more complicated than that, obviously, because Rachel Gould is also immortal and Batman is thoroughly mortal. But at the same time, you know, fundamentally, Batman looks in the mirror and says, that could have been me. Um, and so you get uh, this out of Xanatos, Demona, Macbeth, and of course, most obviously, Thala. But then it's still about what is the what are the writers, what is Jamie, what are the actors, Keith specifically able to pull out of that uh, to make it feel real to the audience, and Keith you know, there's just no one better than Keith for yeah, that. I mean, really it, it's just uh, he that contrast provides so much. Before we get to that final scene, is there anything we haven't touched on yet? Rocky we had a cool Jones. fight. We had a cool fight scene with the uh, explosions going off, the oil blowing up, and um, Xanatos is, I think, genuinely sympathetic to Elisa when they briefly think Goliath might have uh, gotten killed in that explosion. And it's just, uh, you know, a lot of great moments here to contrast everybody. This is. Uh, not just a great Goliath and Thalog episode, but a great Elisa episode, a great Xanatos episode. It's uh, you just see so much of who these people are, and uh, in the face of this thing that they all contributed to bringing into the world. Well, yeah, also, I, I mean, it you know connects for other the like Brooklyn's heart longing, and uh, uh, even uh, Broadway's got that one line. Uh, we're on the case, whatever his detective. Hey, I love the way Bill. I love the way Bill read that. <laughs> yeah, he's awesome. I, you know, I, I think you've got just uh, again credit to Jamie to all our actors who all you know do a lot. Some of them with very little, you know. In other words, Brooklyn has what like two lines in the episode. Owen has ten. Um, uh, Tom is Lexington has, I don't know, half a dozen. Broadway has about the same. Hudson has like three, maybe, maybe. Um, but some of them are doing a huge amount of work with very little. But really, mm -hmm. I, I really want to just give a ton of credit to Carrie because he's able to, you know, just hit those moments and and capture the tone. We've got a lot of funny stuff in this episode, but there's some incredibly and a lot of sort of horrific stuff and a lot of big broad stuff and all this sort of range, but there are also these moments of, you know, just tremendous honesty. Um, and that's a harder thing to get, honestly, than the broad stuff, the humor, all that. I'm not saying it's easy, but it ain't nearly as hard as actually finding a moment of honesty in a 22 minute cartoon. that has got clones and creatures with wings yeah. and, power suits and and um burning oil rigs and all sorts of stuff it's tough to yeah you do but you do it on a regular basis and did and i think that's the reason we're still talking about this show 29 years mm -hmm. later it's uh you made a classic you made some a work that is fundamentally honest and we always appreciated that i mean there's i'm not going to name anything else but there's plenty of shows out there where they're almost they shot or they might shy away from a truly honest moment because they maybe think their target audience 
won't get it, but you just keep now, this bringing it to us. And, yeah. The show leans into him, and and, uh, and again, um, instead of talking down to, it allows the audience to, you know, reach up. And uh, that's why we're still talking about it 30 years later. It's just, it was all on the page. It was very well written. And that started with the audition sites back before the show even started we auditioned uh for more than a couple of days i'll say for a lot of auditions and but just the auditions you know were creating a buzz in town people were talking about hey have you read did you see that and people were talking about the writing from the audition sites i was getting calls anyway just we're not talking about that but it's all on the page yeah it i mean it, it, from, we had some, starting with Michael Reeves, obviously, um, we just had some phenomenally talented people working on this show um, on the writing side. And uh, I mean, I learned a tremendous amount. I mean, I, I'd been writing comic books for years by that time, but I still learned a tremendous amount working with Michael, working with Bryn, Lydia, Carrie. Gary Sperling. Um, Sperling. This, this was a tremendous group of writers. And that final scene is just so chilling. I don't even remember if I thought he was dead or Thalog was dead or not, but when Xanatos realizes that he's still alive, the moment is both terrifying and yet we're excited to see this mm -hmm. new character, this new villain return. It is such a great moment. The fact that Xantos regretted this. Xantos almost seems a little bit scared by it. It's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, I think what Xantos said, oh, I think I've created a monster. <laughs> He's not being ironic. He is yeah. like, oh, shit. Yeah. Um, this could be really bad because he's created a villain who's not just in opposition to Goliath. He's also in opposition to Xantos. He's created his own worst or best competitor, you know, um, and he did it himself. You know, it's not, he had help from Severius, from Owen, from all sorts of people probably, but he did it and um, he, he will have cause to regret that down the road. <laughs> um, and, and, and he knows and it. That's he's what realizing he's it in that moment and it's yeah. chilling. Yeah, and here's the thing I'm going to say this is a commentary on Xan Xanatos. I mean, a character like that, especially since then, these villains who are just so perfect at scheming and planning, who find all the holes in their schemes. And we love Xanatos for a lot of that. But even at times, that can almost come off as artificial. It doesn't here. But part of that is we get these human moments from Xanatos. His relationship with his family, his father, his girlfriend to be wife, even Owen. And now this. It's. Uh, it stops him from being too perfect of a villain, but definitely a perfect character, fictional character. It's one of the things I most appreciate about Xanatos. He has his humanity. He still feels real despite his brilliance. He's uh, he just, I know the meme is Xanatos Gambit, but he doesn't win every time. And this is arguably one of his biggest losses and it's self-inflicted. So it's fantastic. I love it. Right. I mean, he just, I think one thing that is easy to forget 
is that Xanatos is enamored by the gargoyles. He truly is. Oh yeah. Um, he just the idea of them meeting Demona before the sh- first episode of the series. This is a sh- scene we've never seen yet, but he clearly met her, and the whole notion of them. He just is entranced, enthralled by, by the notion. And you know, job, you know, plan A, so to speak, is let me get the gargoyles working for me because these mm-hmm. are powerful versatile guardians of the gate, so to speak. Well, that doesn't work out. So plan B are let me just make steel clan. And then that doesn't work out. (laughs) And plan C is the mutates. Well, that doesn't work out. Now plan D clones. That's the answer. That's the one. Really doesn't work out. (laughs) I mean, look, losing talent, it's like he says to Severius, you know, uh, you know, uh, or he says to 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 Derek about Severus, it's like Talon, you're he's the scientist, you're just the experiment. You know, I can make more of you, it's no big deal. But this is a different animal. Yeah. You know, the robots aren't as effective as he thought, but it doesn't change the fact that he is quite smitten. Of t- taken with yeah. Yeah, just with the idea of gargoyles. And so tries four times to get gargoyles of his own before he finally goes, no, I think I'm done with that. (laughs) Um, Because there's no other explanation for it. You know, uh, why is he so determined to uh, have this? It's because he's just a little bit in love with the idea of having power over creatures of that sort. And he's not and, used to uh, not getting what he wants. And so he, right. You know, just try to going for it. Yeah. Oops. All right. Well, I think we've covered just about everything. Is there anything left? I mean, there's some great lines in here, you know, chip off the old block, all the old blocks. That was fun. Um, mm-hmm. Make me one with everything. Now I know where Music. I got the temper for, you know, <laughs> temper from. Um, so it, it's all good. Um, I think we covered most of it. All right. Well, this is going to go up. I'm going to do a really fast turnaround on this. It's going to go up in literally two days from now, Thursday night, the 20th. So San Diego Comic-Con, should we get going? Is there, should, should we the first day of San Diego? Is there anything either of you two want to plug? Jamie? I'm not allowed to. Uh, I can't, well, it hasn't been, it's going to be announced, but it hasn't been yet, so... I'll plug, I'm doing a panel at San Diego, uh, Comic-Con, uh, 1130 Sunday morning. It's a Disney slash Dynamite panel. We'll talk about Dynamite's line of Disney comics, which in, of course includes Gargoyles and Gargoyles Dark Ages. Um, and uh, so I hope you stop by uh, at 1130 Sunday, the 23rd of July, 2023. <laughs> um we'll be uh i'll be on a panel down there um as far as i know it's my last con appearance of the summer maybe of the year um so if you're around san diego stop by otherwise the stuff to promote it is not too surprising uh uh, gargoyles number seven came out so i hope you guys all have the first seven issues of gargoyles and gargoyles dark ages number one just came out 
as well. And so I hope you guys have picked that up. And then also the Young Justice Trade, collecting young the six issues of Young Justice mm. Targets came out. Uh, I got my copy from well, Amazon today. Yeah, I think it officially comes out tomorrow. But if you pre-ordered it, you might have gotten your your uh, copies a little early. I did. Um, so I hope you all pick those comics up. Really proud of all of them. And I hope you stop by the panel. What about the live-action right. Gargoyles movie? Nobody wants to talk about Oh, good lord, no. No? no? Wait, what? No? Too soon. I'm going to just say one more thing about that before <laughs> we take off. Um, I would love a good Gargoyles live-action movie. Let me stress that good. On a personal note, I actually think with the right script, and I'm stressing this, with the right script, Kenneth Branagh would be good for the material. He's a Shakespearean director. He's got a history. But at the same time, I love animation, so I sometimes see this attitude on the internet where I feel like if you make a live action anything based on a comic book, a, mo- a cartoon, or whatever, you're somehow legitimizing it in a way that it hasn't already, and that kind of bothers me because I love comics, I love animation. I don't think live action is a superior medium. Anyway, it's uh, it's different. They're all different. Well, I, I don't think it's superior, but what it is without a doubt is financially superior. Yes. <laughs> so um, Bigger anyway. Uh, I think if there were a live action Gargoyles movie, uh, particularly a good one, it would be great for the franchise as a whole. Um, and so I'm all for it in a theoretical sense. Um, as I said earlier, I don't think this is real. Uh, I have never met Kenneth Bernard. Jamie has, but I have not. I'm working uh, with him currently. But I'm yeah. a big fan. Uh, I love A Midwinter's Tale. I love his Henry V. Um, I love... Uh, I love when oh, he played Iago in that Othello movie with Lawrence Fishburne. I, you know, I, I, I think he's great. Uh, you know, he's there are a lot of great people who might do a terrific job directing a Gargoyles movie, including... Jonathan Frakes, Sally Richardson Whitfield, and sure, Kenneth Bernal. Why, why the hell not? Uh, but I don't think that uh, that makes this false story real. Um, and I have reason to believe, though I don't know, I have reason to believe that it's fake. Um, well, Nerdist, well, like I said at the beginning, Nerdist already reached out to a Disney rep and a Disney rep denied it. Right. So um, hopefully I'll put it to bed. But, you know, in a grand theoretical sense a live action movie would be terrific um I don't, i'm not saying superior i'm just saying it would be great for the In franchise as a whole. Great, yeah yeah it would be his own thing i can All text right. ken's manager right now see what she says <laughs> i'll let you know all right we've only got three minutes left on this thing but we should probably wrap up now i think we've exhausted all these topics jamie thank you for coming back on we definitely want to talk to sure. you again at some point greg thank you for everything you do and to our Jennifer, thank you for everything. I know you're not here, but we miss you. We really do. And we um, miss you, Jennifer. And uh, join us next time for Upgrade with Tom Adcox. Thank you for listening to Voices from the Eerie, a Gargoyles podcast powered by the Spidey Dude Radio Network located at spidey-dude.com. If you like this show, then please listen to Spectacular Radio based on the Spectacular Spider-Man animated series, which features some familiar voices. You can also find these great podcasts, Clone Saga Chronicles, Make Mine Mayday, Amazing Spider-Man Classics, The Sal Buscema Podcast, and Books of X. All of this and more on the Spidey Dude Radio Network.
Network. And please follow us on Twitter at From Erie. That's From E-Y-R-I-E. And join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Network for more exclusive content. Thank you. You two didn't go to all this trouble just to raise a fool.